Well, uh, thanks for being here, guys. Let me pray, and uh, we'll jump into class here. Uh, Father, we thank you as we come together around your word. Uh, thank you for the privilege of being together and learning to study and read your word. Uh, thank you that we do this in the community of brothers and sisters, that we can learn from one another, and uh, how we pray that you'll just help us to uh, know you better as we learn to read and interpret scripture in a more faithful way. Lord, open our eyes tonight that we wouldn't just get uh, caught up in, in skills and techniques, but uh, but to know you more and um, just ask your blessing on our time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to, uh, Lee and I are going to tag team again tonight. I'm going to start off talking about word studies, and then uh, he's, he's going to come in and talk to you about using commentaries. So uh, that's where we're going. And um, so just to remind you kind of kind of where where we are in this process, this is this little picture that we've talked about virtually every week, hopefully reminds you of what we're trying to do uh, when we're leading when we're reading an old book from a different culture and a different time in history and even a different language, there are going to be some difficulties to overcome in terms of trying to understand that. Thankfully, we have very good English versions today. We're grateful for that. But just by way of review, um, what we're trying to do under number one there, what are we trying to do? What's the first step in reading and interpreting Scripture? Yeah, you get, first of all, you're trying to figure out what did the author mean to the people that he wrote to. That, that's, that's the whole point of this in terms of our initial step is what did the author mean to the original audience? And in order to do that, we see number two there, we're going to have to overcome some potential barriers of meaning, things like culture and language, time, situation. And that's where some of your background books are going to help. And then uh, what's number three there, the principalizing bridge? Someone explain that to me. What's that mean? Yeah, so in light of in light of understanding things like culture and language and time and situation, that helps us to better understand what did it mean to the original audience, what was the point of the story? Like David was talking to you last week of narrative. What's the point of the story? What are we supposed to gain out of this? And then having understood its message about God, its message about redemption, its message about humanity, whatever the point of the story is, we cross that bridge and we say, okay, well, what application can we make from that today? And, uh, and then once we're in our own town, we make uh, application. So that's, that's what the picture means. So again, we're going to grasp the text in their town. What do the text mean to the biblical audience? We're going to measure the width of the river. What are the differences between the biblical audience and us? That helps us to make sure we're not making uh, mistakes in interpretation. We cross the principalizing bridge. What, what theological principle or main point in the text? What was the author intending to convey? We cross the bridge and then we bring it uh, excuse me, we skipped number four, didn't we? Uh, number four is simply a check, right? How does what we learn about God in this book fit into the overall message of Scripture um, to make sure that we're not making an error or to f- perhaps fill it out in more detail? And then how should we apply it today there in our own town? Okay. Well, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to add a, a tool to your biblical reading and interpretation toolbox. Now, 
if if we were building a house, what are some of the tools that we would use a bunch if we were building a house? A hammer, saws, nails, a level, wood. Yeah, right. Okay, so th- those are the things we're going to be going to over and over and over again. What would be a tool that we wouldn't use every day, but we might use it for a couple of steps in building a house? What are, and Rogers are, ex- well, some of you may be woodworkers. I know Rogers a woodworker. Um, what are some of those specialty tools that we might want to have on hand, but we're not going to use them every day? A wet saw. Maybe a grinder. Hammer drill. So, so here, here, here's, here's what I want you to think about tonight, okay? I want you to think of a word study like a hammer drill. I want you to think of it like a wet saw. This is not a tool that you're going to use every time you open your Bible to read it and interpret it. Now, I know that, that that's going to maybe surprise some of you because based on maybe other classes you've taught or things you've heard in other churches, word study is like the engine of Bible interpretation. You're just looking up all these words, doing all these word studies, and, and that's just simply not the case. Uh, my professor, one of my professors in seminary who knew, goodness, he knew like 12 different languages. He was a Bible translator in Bangladesh for many years, and uh, one of my favorite professors, uh, he said, and this shocked us, that the vast majority of word studies are a waste of time. Why would the vast majority of word studies be a waste of time, do you think? What's that? You're focusing on the wrong thing? Yeah, you, you do all that work to find out that your English Bible got it right. So I want you to think of wor- one of the worst things that you can do walking away from tonight is to misuse your word study, to misuse your tool. Like, like if, if Drew's building a house and he's just hammer drilling everything, you know, you wreck the house. So th- this, is a t- this is a specialty tool that you're going to use in certain times and in certain places of your interpretation, but if you're doing this constantly, you're probably misusing it, okay? So think it, uh, keep that in mind. It's an important tool to have, right? It, it's the right tool for the job on occasion when we need to do a, a deeper dive into word studies. Now, with that in mind, uh, I, I suppose this is a little bit like, you know, getting your first firearm, right? You know, you're, you're taking a big responsibility, and obviously you can misuse the firearm if you're not careful. So let's talk about some things we want to avoid, some word study fallacies. You'll read some of these in the Grasping God's Word book, and uh, you'll also find them. I noted uh, D.A. Carson's Exegetical Fallacies, uh, which also talks about some of these. Okay, so how about this one? The root fallacy. How many of you have um, heard, you know, you're, you're, you're listening to your favorite, uh, you know, radio preacher, or you're reading a blog, and uh, the, the Bible teacher says something like, now the background of the word is this. The word butterfly comes from the word butter and fly, and so naturally that means that this is a stick of butter that can fly through the air. That's what it means, right? What's wrong with that? Or sawhorse, right? Uh, a saw that is mounting on a horse, right? Is that what it... 
See, this, this is what's called the root fallacy or the etymology, the background of the word fallacy. It's the idea that the meaning of the word can be understood by studying the background of the word. And I gave you a biblical example here. Some older versions of scripture are going to say in a passage like John 3.16 that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. Now, part of the problem with that is begotten implies that there was a birth, there was a beginning. Uh, if we look at just the background of the word, uh, uh, coming from words that mean only and come into being or begotten or birthed. Um, so we, we don't want to rely on the background of the word to determine the meaning. A butterfly, pineapple, you can, you can have fun with this all day, right? What a word came from in the past in terms of its background may or may not tell you what the word means in the present context, right? So we don't want to overstudy the background of the word. You're, what, what are we inter- When we're studying a word, what are we trying to learn? When we're doing a word study, what, what's the goal? To understand the word better, where? In the context with which you're reading it, at the time that the author wrote it. Now, uh, uh, do words change over time? Think of the word, just to use a contemporary example, think of what the word gay meant 50 years ago. In fact, we're coming up on Christmas season and we're going to sing some songs that use that word gay. And of course, gay 50 years ago meant what? Meant happy. And at some point, that word changed meaning into something very different. Uh, Gay would describe somebody who has homosexual desire or practice homosexual behavior, right? So we don't typically use the word gay like, hey, I'm going to a party and we're going to have a gay old time, right? We don't say that anymore because people might get the wrong idea. See, words change meaning over time. And so what we're interested in a word study is not what did the word mean then. We're not even interested in what the word means today. I mean, Hebrew, modern Hebrew is spoken in Israel today. Modern Greek is spoken in Greece today. But we're not interested in the history or the modern day usage. We're looking at the slice of time when the author wrote it in the Bible. That's what we're interested in studying in terms of the word's meaning. Uh, another way, this this goes uh, on to the, the, the point here, time frame fallacies. Um, there's some big words here that uh, if you can recite Next time, we'll give you bonus points. Semantic anachronism means the reading of a later use of a word back into earlier literature. Now, now you've heard this before. When Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful, how we should be giving to the church. And we've heard preachers and, and blogs and articles say uh, the word is uh, hilaros, right, which we get our word, hilarious. So God wants you to be rolling in the aisle when you turn in your giving check. God loves a hilarious giver. Or maybe you've heard uh, dunamis, right? Uh, where Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, he says, uh, for, for this reason I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. Mightily is dunamis, dynamite. You know, God's like dynamite in my soul. Well, that preaches well, but it's wrong. Paul had no concept of dynamite when he wrote that. Uh, uh, Paul's usage in 2 Corinthians does not mean hilarious giving. It doesn't mean you're, you're laughing your head off. It means cheerful or, or happy. 
so that that's a the problem there. What are we doing? We're, we're taking the modern day word and we're reading its meaning back into the biblical word. Does that make sense? And then you can do it the other way where you read um, uh, the opposite sense, like like the word phileo, uh, which in the Bible uh, means I love. And uh, later on, uh, it, it came to um, uh, to mean I kiss, right? So, so we have to, uh, or excuse me, that was an earlier version that was no longer in place during biblical times. So it becomes ob- uh, obsolete in that way. So what we're what we're interested in is the the what are the possible meanings of our word at the time the Bible writers were writing? That's that's what we're really going after there. Uh, thirdly. Uh, sometimes we get all excited when we see synonyms being used. Uh, probably most of you have heard a sermon on John 21, or maybe read a, read a commentary or a book or a, you know, a Christian article or something like that, that when uh, this is uh, the context where um, Jesus is restoring Peter following his denial of Christ. And uh, he asks him three times, you know, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And uh in the middle of that context, uh, the word is changed, and it's changed uh, from phileo to agapao. And um, so, man, why is that distinction there? And sometimes when we see uh, two similar words, our reaction in word study is, oh, Jesus must be communicating one you know, meaning versus another, and, and there's even some debate over Phileo versus agapao, are those, are those words completely different types of love? Do they overlap? Uh, our, our word study would have to help us to know that. One of the things that's, that's wrongly propagated is that agapao is God's love. It's, it's, it's um, unconditional love, and, and that's just simply not the case. It's, that, that's not always the way the word is used. So we have to be careful. But in, in this context, what we don't want to assume is that there's some technical difference that is contributing here to the different uses of the words, right? There, there's some main, there's some big difference that uh, the, the writer is trying to communicate in, in changing words here when in fact the writer may simply be using a different word as a synonym. It, it, it's saying the same thing with a different language. So again, context would have to help us determine that. But what we don't want to assume is that any synonyms must have some sort of nuance of meaning. Because we don't talk like that, do we? You know, if I told you I love my wife and I, I care for her greatly and I cherish her, and I, I'm not necessarily saying love and care and cherish are like these big distinct words, right? I'm just trying to communicate to you that I really love my wife. And, and that's how language works. We have to be careful to not assume that the writer is intending a difference with synonyms. Context is going to help us to know that. What about combining meanings? One of the things we're going to look at tonight is, uh, in word studies, we're going to look at the possible meanings of different words, what we call the semantic range. What are the possible uh, glosses or meanings or definitions of those words? And sometimes what we end up doing is taking the possible meanings and combine them. Let's take the English word pool for an example, okay? What does the English, what could the English word pool mean? Give me, give me some, uh, let's do the semantic range of the word pool. A body of water? Yeah, a billiard game? 
What else? A group of people, like a, like a carpool. Okay. So, and those are three pretty distinct meanings, right? Would it make any sense if, uh, if I'm walking behind your back fence and I see a body of water and I say, look, look at that body of water where people, where a group of people play uh, billiards, right? Look at the pool. That doesn't make any sense if I'm just combining all those glosses together. So when we're, when we're making distinctions in meaning, we don't want to group them all together when we're trying to interpret the passage. Now, now footnote on that. Sometimes different nuances of meaning overlap. And we're going to see some of that in the biblical example we have in front of us. But just know that to combine all of those meanings together is not the way language works. And so we want to be careful of that. So uh, in the NIV translation of the scripture, uh, paraklesis is translated comfort, encouragement, appeal, be encouraged, consolation, encourage, encouraged, encouraging message, exhortation, greatly encouraged, uh, preaching, and urgently. So we wouldn't want to just combine all those together and say, well, anytime we see that word occurs, it means all those things. It's not going to mean all those things. We're going to have to separate the semantic range there, the different possible meanings. Now, notice there is some overlap, right? Encouragement, be encouraged. We, we, we might say comfort and encouragement overlap, right? Though those overlap. Um, so there may be, uh, again, some overlapping meaning there, but what we don't want to do is just combine them all together. And then finally, um, importing meaning from a cross-reference. As you're studying how a given word is used in Scripture, be sure you do not import meaning from another passage into your own. Um, so for example, if we take the word Pasco, which occurs 42 times in the New Testament, if we were to study it, all 42 of those examples in 41 cases, the meaning is going to be something like suffer. I suffer or depending on the, the form of the verb there. And it's tempting as you're looking up these words and you see the same meaning used to think, oh, that must mean what my word means in the context that I'm studying. Except that if you were to do that, when you're studying Galatians 3, verse 4, you would find that that's the one exception of 42 instances where the word probably doesn't mean suffer. And if we just made that conclusion, so all these other verses mean suffer, so that, that must be what Galatians means, we would be wrong. You say, well, how are you going to know that? How, how are you going to know? What's that? Context. You read it in the context. And, and when, you, when you put it alongside what's going on there, you go, suffer doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Uh, what Paul probably intends there is the, the gloss, the meaning experience. Um, but anyway, so context always determines meaning, not word count usage or the prevalence in a cross-reference. Okay, questions on those examples? I'm going to hand you a loaded gun here in a minute. I want you to use it correctly and not not hurt yourself or other people with it. And uh, word study is just one of those things that it's very easy to misuse. I'm not sure why that is, but um, we want to make sure we know how to use the tool properly. Questions? Okay. 
All right, so how are we going to do a word study? I'm just going to give you an outline of how to do a word study, and then we're going to, we're going to work through a couple of examples, and then I'll hand it over to Lee, and he'll uh, take the baton and uh, talk to you about commentary usage, okay? So let me, just, this is a simple process for doing a word study. Uh, you can find one in your Grasping God's Word um, textbook, and uh, you've probably seen how to do these in other places too. But uh, the first thing you do is remember the goal, right? The, the goal is to understand the author's intended meaning of the word in the context or passage under study. Now, here's what we're going to do. Word study is looking under the microscope at language. And there are times we need to look at the microscope in language. But then, having gotten that data in word study, what are we going to do with it? We're going to take that, that detail information we're going to step back, we're going to look at our sentence, and more than that, we're going to look at the paragraph, and more than that, we may need to look at the whole argument, maybe even the whole book, depending on where we're at, to make sure that what we've looked at and studied under the microscope makes sense in the broader big picture. So let's, let's not make too much out of a word study because that word study is only helpful insofar as it helps us to understand the author's intended meaning in the larger frame of context. Okay, so don't forget the big picture. So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to identify important words that are worthy of a word study. If you try to do word study on everything, you're just wasting your time. So what you're looking for is the right words or at least... Maybe not the right words. They are appropriate words or words that are more worthy of a word study. Things like repeated words, uh, words that are crucial to the passage. Maybe if, if the author is making an argument and his argument hinges on one particular word or you know a clause that has a key word in it, that may be a good logical place to go. Words that are translated differently. Remember back, the, the very first lesson we had, we looked at all the different English versions and you did a homework assignment where you were supposed to study those and note the similarities and differences, well, here's, here's where you're going to take advantage of your data there. Because when you're studying your passage, one of the things you're going to look at is, um, uh, well, if I have, I'm looking at five different English versions of the Bible, and all five of them translate the word differently, what does that tell you? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're struggling to know. The word may be unclear or maybe, maybe there's um, you know, different ways of understanding it. So that would be a situation that's worthy of a word study or at least some closer investigation. Uh, words that appear to be theologically significant, we'll do an example of that tonight, and words that seem to be unclear, the, word, words that uh, just don't quite make sense or... Um, uh, things like that, okay. So what we're going to do now um, is we're going to go to Bible Hub. Actually, let me let me give you the process, and you'll have it there, and then I'll grab the keyboard and the mouse from Drew, and we'll do a couple of examples here so you get the idea, okay. So um, I'm going to teach you how to do this using the website Bible Hub. Now, how many of you have learned how to do word study using like a paper concordance, an interlinear Bible, okay, so maybe uh, maybe you had a Strong's Concordance or a um, some of you that have done Precept. I know the the Zodiades material uh, is popular there. Uh, we won't we won't need it just yet, Drew. I'm going to go through the process and then we'll swap. Okay, thank you.
so anyway, so so let's just walk through this process uh, using Bible Hub. And you're gonna if you've done this with paper tools, you won't believe how much easier it is with an electronic version. And uh, how many of you have Bible software? Okay, what what do you have? What kind of Bible software? You don't know? Okay, Roger, what do you have? Okay. Yeah, okay, so the, so the two main Bible software packages today are Logos and Accordance, and uh, Olive Tree is a really nice uh, package. Yeah, so Blue Letter Bible is going to be a website that's very popular, and some of these places like Bible Hub, Blue Letter Bible have apps now. But um, anyway, uh, for those of you that, that do Bible reading and study, that may be a worthy investment to make at some point, but it's amazing how many of these tools are now free and available online, and I think Bible Hub is, is one of the better ones out there. So, Okay, so we're going to go to BibleHub.com, and we're going to enter the verse where your word occurs in the search field. I'll show you how to do this in a minute. Uh, you're going to click on the INT button, which stands for interlinear. Do you, are you guys familiar with, it, with an interlinear? An interlinear is a, a way of presenting the Bible that shows you the English version, and then it shows, well, a true interlinear is going to actually follow the Greek and Hebrew word order, and then it's going to put the English um, translation or, or rendition of each word below the line, and then it may have some parsing information, uh, meaning it would tell you what part of speech it is, a verb or an adjective or a noun, and then it's going to parse that information. So it's going to tell you the case of the noun or the tense of the verb. And then at, usually at the very top, you'll see a number. And how many are familiar with Strong's numbers? Okay, a Strong's number is uh, it's a number given to every original word in Scripture. So that those of us that don't know how to read Greek and Hebrew words can identify a word based on the number and then be able to look it up in a dictionary to get some insight as to the word. So in this case, you're going to click on the INT button, which opens an interlinear, and then you're going to find your word in the interlinear uh, version and note the Strong's number. From there, you click on the Strong's number, and that's going to open up the word in a dictionary. For New Testament words, we're going to look at the Thayer's Greek lexicon. Lexicon's just a, a fancy word for dictionary. And Old Testament words, we're going to read the article under the BDB, or Brown Driver Briggs, Hebrew lexicon. From there, we're going to determine the word's semantic range. Semantic range just means the, the possible meanings of our word. We'll write them down so that we can uh, keep track of those. And then looking at the column on the right, we'll see on Bible Hub what's called an Englishman's Concordance. And uh, what that is, is that an Englishman's Concordance shows you every verse in the Bible that has your word in it. So you can look at all the different contexts in which your word is used. And that gives you a better idea of the semantic range and how the word is used. Correct. And then you'll want to pay a special attention, of course, to the way that your author uses the word. And then you're going to return to your passage under study, reading the whole paragraph, the whole section, looking at the whole argument. We're going to ask which one of these meanings best fits the context that I'm studying. 
And then finally, we always want to double-check our conclusion against a reliable commentary. Another thing a commentary is going to do, and I'll show you an example tonight, is a commentary is going to give you and I more technical information about the passage that probably most of us wouldn't understand. And sometimes that extra information makes one meaning more likely than another. For example... Uh, the, the verb, the, the type of verb that's being used sometimes will give some nuance there. Okay, so with that in mind, uh, let's do that. So now, Drew, I'll take the keyboard and the mouse, please, and you can open up Bible Hub for me. <clears throat> Thank you. Okay. Let's see if we can make this work here. Okay, so let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 21, verse 9. So uh, if you have an availability, I've warned you about this, if you have a computer or an iPad even a phone, you can go to Bible Hub and kind of follow along. Phones are a little bit hard because the screen's hard, or the screen is small, makes it hard to read. But uh, I use Bible Hub on my iPad pretty regularly. Okay, so uh, again, getting some context here, uh, this is really the account of Abraham. We've seen God meet with him, and uh, the Abrahamic covenant, as we call it, where Abraham was called to leave his homeland to go to a land that God would show him and God promises to make him a great nation and bless him and make his name great and there would be a seed that would come from him that would bless all the families of the earth. And so we know the story, it's developed. We're in the part of the story now where um, uh, after waiting for many, many years for God to do what he said he was going to do, Abram goes in and takes Hagar as his wife and they have Ishmael. And of course, God tells him, "No, that that wasn't that wasn't the plan." And um, so, finally, in chapter 21, uh, Isaac is born, uh, the promised son. And uh, this is interesting. Um, even even Isaac's name is related to our study here. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, and if you trace this word through the story, I'd be interesting, David, to look particularly what you were saying about narrative, how this word um, is one of the key words in the story. And you wouldn't necessarily know it, um, uh, but you'll, you'll see what I mean here in a moment, because of how characters respond, what God tells Abraham and Sarah to name their son, and then even what happens afterward. Uh, one of those narrative markers that David talked about last time. Anyway, so in Genesis chapter 21... Uh, Verse 9, as soon as Isaac is born, the text tells us that Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, saw saw her mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. We see some of the rivalry that the narrative has already developed between Sarah and and Hagar. Now, looking looking on the the Bible hub here, notice this. NIV says uh, that uh, Hagar was. Um, let's see here. I can't see that. Mocking. 
New Living says making fun of her son. ESV says laughing. King James says mocking. I think the NASB says, uh, what does it say? NASB says mocking. So we have some different variations here. And the question is, what does that word mean? Um, so let's, let's say we want to know, well, what, what was she doing? Was she laughing? Was she mocking? Was she making fun of him? And again, even those all overlap, right? Uh, but let's, let's look at this. So what we're going to do is we're going to, so here's our passage, right? So we've typed our passage in, and then we're going to click on this. Uh, I guess it's, the, I thought it was INT. Uh, maybe that's on my iPad, but we're going to click on this interlinear button here, okay? And that brings up our passage. Um, and just kind of looking at the passage here, we have, this is the Strong's number. This is the transliteration of the Hebrew word. So if we take the Hebrew word and just take the Hebrew letters and turn them into their closest English letter, we get the word, right? So the Bain here, B-E-N, gets translated, uh, that's son, right, Bain. And you'll notice, you're saying, wait a minute, I, I, I can't read that because Hebrew, you'll remember, reads from the right to the left, Okay, so we're, we start over here and we work this way. So where is our word? Well, here, here's our word, oh, and, then, and then Hebrew, here's the English translation, and then this is our parsing information. Um, so N would mean noun, direct object, article, pronoun, V is verb, with a conjunction attached. So this is our parsing information that tells you uh, about the the word itself okay so where's our word that we're interested in we're interested in the the mocking the laughing uh, that's down here okay here's our word so what are we going to do there's our word so what do we do next we're going to click on the number so there's the strong's number we're going to click on it and that brings up our our word here okay and uh, you get to try to pronounce this with me. Uh, we don't have strong gutturals in our language uh, like maybe a German would. So the word is T-S, right? T's. And then it's a guttural H. It's H. And then the Q on the end is K. So it's something like T-S-K-K, right? T-S-K-K. Um and depending on the form, uh, the vowels change a little bit there. But that's our word. Okay? So there we, there we have it. And if we scroll down to the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon, um, we have some glosses here, okay? And, and you don't need to know um, Hebrew to get the general idea of what the, the semantic range is here, right? We're going to read the article and we're trying to get an idea of what is the semantic range? What are the possible meanings here, right? So look at this. This is really interesting. The, the main idea of the verb is what? What's the first meaning or gloss there? It's to laugh, right? That's to laugh. And in Hebrew, Yitzhak is the word for Isaac. So if you look at that word, 
you, you can kind of see where the, Isaac, the, the name Isaac comes from because the name Isaac means what? Laughter. It's interesting. God says you're going to have a son. You're going to be geriatric when you do. And you're going to name him Laughter. You know, it's like, it's kind of funny actually. Um, and we know that there's some background to that because Sarah initially laughs at the prospect of her having a child in their old age. So that's that's the first sort of nuance of meaning there. So we would write that down, laugh, right? But as we scroll down here, notice, and if we look up, um, so here's that here's that Englishman's concordance off to the side here. You see this Englishman's concordance? See how it gives us all the passages where our word occurs? See that? And it gives us a translation, okay? And he laughed, Sarah laughed, Sarah did laugh, I did not laugh. That's the account uh, with the angel, uh, but you did laugh. Uh, but then notice this. This is uh, jesting or mocked or to be jesting. So here's a different uh, Genesis 19:14 gives a, a, a second sort of nuance of meaning here, and we see it right here uh, under the second set of meanings here. So the main set of meanings are, is going to be laugh, and all these glosses, according to the lexicon, would use that word laugh as, as the meaning. And then down here, we have uh, some, we, we might call them, um, uh, it's, it's a secondary meaning, really. So here's one, laugh, not laugh like, you know, I find something funny, but laugh like I'm jesting. I'm maybe making fun of somebody. Uh, and then we have a, another nuance down here, making sport of, toying around with. You, one one uh, uh, passage here is Judges 16. Do you, do you remember that one? Where Samson, they gouge out his eyes and they bring him into the temple. And what do they say? Bring us the Jewish... Uh, Strong man, that we may make sport of him, make fun of him, uh, entertain us. You know, they're they're going to bring him out for their own amusement, as they would maybe mock him or laugh at him um, in some way. So it gets that that meaning there. That there's even another nuance here that has to do with physical affection in the context of marriage, as it's used. I think with uh, with Isaac and Rebecca in one place here also, so so we get an idea of all those different meanings, right? Laugh, and then an idea of jesting, making sport of, making fun of. Uh, there's this one sort of specialty uh, uh, variation of that, uh, thinking about marital affection, and uh, and so we have all those possibilities, and, and we can study them all right here. And you'll notice if we scroll to the bottom of the Englishman's concordance here, it tells us that the word occurs 13 times. Okay? So with that in mind, uh, we look at our possible meanings there. What do you think best fits the context in the story of Genesis 21? Well, we want to go back probably read the whole account that would be a really good thing to do to kind of get a sense of the back and forth between Sarah and Hagar. And one of the things we, we note is that there has been some jealousy, some rivalry. The narrator has actually pointed that out to us. So what is if, if there's been some rivalry and some jealousy, um, does that help us 
to know in the context maybe what sense is here. Is Hagar laughing like, oh, they named him laughter. Ha ha, that's funny. Or is she mocking Sarah that their son is named laughter in light of her laughing at the angel that she didn't believe him? What do you think? Think she was mocking? Is there anything in the context that might help us? Okay, so the narrator tells us there's some rivalry. Okay. Look at the next verse. What does verse 10 say? Therefore she said to Abraham, that's Sarah talking, right? Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Well, does that sound like two girls laughing at a joke? What does that sound like? <laughs> it's a cat fight, right? It's a, this is two ladies mocking one another. right? That, that seems to fit the context better, doesn't it? And then furthermore, you'd think if everybody's just laughing at a joke, look at verse 11. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. So Abraham is not laughing. He's bothered by the whole thing. So again, that, that points that probably Hagar is mocking or making fun of in some way. Uh, she's not merely laughing that everybody thinks it's funny that... Um, what Sarah says, that God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh at me. Okay, That's probably not the sense in which Hagar is laughing. Um, I think for sake of time, Lee, I'm going to hold off and make sure you have the whole 45 minutes for commentary since you have six pages and I only had three. So You only have one page? Okay. Well, let me... I'll take... I'll take five more minutes, okay? Um, Let's look at one other example here just so you can get used to doing this. This one's a lot easier because the the word is not used very often. Um, Let's look at Luke 18, 13 in a story that you're very likely familiar with. And again, we're we're parachuting in uh, to these narratives and that's always dangerous because as you learned last time, we want to read the whole story, the whole book, and get a sense of how, in this case, uh, Luke is organizing his material and in terms of the flow of the book, the point, the argument, the structure. Um, so Jesus, actually this, this section is pretty easy in terms of a narrative. He's going to give a parable, and in this case, we don't have to guess about the meaning of the parable. We don't have to study it, you know, super closely because the narrator Luke tells us in Luke chapter 18 verse 9 why Jesus told the parable and what it's about so look at 18 9 and he Jesus told this parable to some who to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt and you guys know the story two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee the other a tax collector The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, 
but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus concludes, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself would be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice the contrast, right? The religious leader, the the type of person that everybody in the Jewish community would have looked up to as an expert in the law, as a very godly person, contrasted with the tax collector who were considered to be the worst of society, especially Jewish tax collectors, because they were viewed as sellouts to Rome, and they were also extorting money from people in many cases. So Jesus sets this up by way of contrast. Remember, in narrative, that's often what's happening. There's a contrast of characters. And, uh, and, and often there, there's a bit of a, of a shock when Jesus gets to the end and says it was the tax collector that went home justified. Uh, it's interesting, though, uh, when we talk about theologically significant words, one of the questions we might have is, what is this mercy that the tax collector is asking about? What, what is, he says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. So let's look that word up briefly and, uh, and look at it in more detail, okay? So we type the passage in. There's our passage. We click on interlinear. That brings up our interlinear. And uh, you'll notice that Greek reads like English from left to right. So we'll start over here and we work this way. We kind of work our way through the passage and we look for that word where the tax collector cries out to God for mercy. So saying, Lagon, Daos, God, here's our word here. Okay, be merciful to me. And uh, so what do we do? If that's our word, we want to study it, what do we do now? Okay, click on the number, right? And here it is. And remember, in the when we're doing an Old Testament word, we're going to use BDB, the Brown Driver Briggs Lexicon. When we're in, in the New Testament, we're going to use the Thayer's Greek Lexicon. And this is what's interesting. And, and uh, one of the other things we do is sometimes we compare different words that intend something similar. And if you do that, you'll notice that uh, Jesus, as he's telling the story doesn't say that the tax collector says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. He doesn't use the normal, more common word for mercy. Um, In fact, you'll see here, this is not a word that occurs very often. So what do you notice about the meaning of this particular word? Uh, Thayer gives us two glosses here, two uh, potential meanings in the semantic range. What do you notice about that? Yeah, make propitiation, be propitious or to render uh, propitious to oneself or to appease. Uh, Moving down to meaning number two, to make propitiation for or to expiate as it's uh, apparently used in Hebrews 2. What's the difference between be propitious versus asking for mercy? Any ideas? What's, what, what is propitiation? Let's start there. What is that? Okay, it might have to do with taking the place of someone else. What's that? Appease. Do you remember propitiation? Yeah, 
it's it's a it's a sacrifice that satisfies uh, a requirement, right? We, we we say in its fullest sense, propitiation is a sacrifice that absorbs uh, the wrath of God coming toward us. And so we we notice here in looking at this. The tax collector is not just saying, Lord, be merciful to me. Show me mercy. Show me grace. What is he actually saying? Yeah, he's saying, make propitiation for me. Be, be propitious toward me. It, it, do something to take away this wrath that comes upon me. So he appears, just look based on the word usage here, he appears to be saying something much more profound theologically than just an asking for mercy. And uh, we, we won't do this for the sake of time, but if we looked up in the Englishman's concordance the other occurrence of the word in Hebrews, and there are some variations of the word as well uh, in First John and others, that, uh, that that's exactly what the word means it points to uh, propitiation or um, atoning for sin or being propitious in, in taking away um, wrath that is deserved so that appeasement is is reached there so okay so uh, you'll you'll get to practice this in your homework assignment on word studies using bible hub or if you want to use olive tree or logos or whatever you have but but to get the idea of looking up the word, looking at the possible meanings, looking at its usage in other, other scripture, and then with, with a, an idea of how the word is used, you go back to that passage then, looking at it in the broader context, and, and asking the question, which one of those meanings seems to fit the best? Okay? All right, I look forward to seeing how you do on your homework. Lee, come on up, and Lee's going to talk to you about commentary research, and I will give this back to Drew. Okay, this lesson is derived from a reading from pages uh, 275 and 278, which is actually a reading assignment for this week, so, uh, in that book. So, uh, that's the video we're going to listen to. We'll get to it maybe later. So, here's the question. Um, this is a challenge to everything we're doing as, uh, you know, Keith goes back to that big picture, right, uh, that diagram. We need to reconstruct the historic setting. We need to deal with the language. We need to unravel difficult and obscure portions of Scripture. We need to have interpretations consistent with the rest of Scripture, etc., etc. That's what we're trying to do, right, with all of this exegetical step-by-step process, right, to, to cross that bridge, understand the original, what the, what the writer meant to who he was giving it to. So what if I said, you know what I really need? I just need a gifted teacher. Well, God actually gave us gifted teachers so this is ephesians 4 11 through 12 and he gave uh, the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of christ so when i go to do my bible study i need a teacher right but you know keith is a busy guy and i have a hard time getting hold of him to ask him my questions so how do i obtain the help of teachers whom god has given to the church to build up the body to help me understand scripture he's actually given us teachers and some of them i don't actually meet personally right and some of them are actually dead right <clears throat> i want to talk to teachers who have done the complete exegetical work that we're talking about 
Those people exist. They are effective teachers. And what makes them effective is that they are digging hard to understand what the Scripture meant as they explain it to us, right? So, where do we find gifted teachers? I need them. We find them in commentaries. Um, Yet, I need to find good teachers. I want to just not any commentary. I want to find a good commentary, a good teacher. I need to avoid false teachers as I'm going through this. Uh, How do I evaluate and select commentary? So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how do you go about evaluating a commentary. Um, It's rather simple. Um, And so there's different kinds of commentaries you can get. Some commentaries you'll get will be like the whole Bible in two volumes. (laughs) You know, some may be uh, a book. You know, let's, let's do MacArthur's commentary on Luke. It's four volumes just on the book of Luke, right, where... Some commentaries, you may get a whole commentary for the Bible, and it's and it's rather large. So uh, what do those commentaries do? So these big one- or two-volume commentaries for not a, a book passage, but for the New Testament or for the Old Testament or for the whole Bible, they're designed to do some of the, the preliminary stuff, not the detailed exegetical. So uh, <clears throat> they give you the historical context. They trace the meaning of the text in some key letter, literal points. But they're not often digging deep into a passage. They're just giving you general information. So if you go to buy a commentary, and it's one of those big coverage in just one or two volumes, you're probably, that's good for some background information, but you're not going to get the detailed help you're going to be looking for, right, with difficult passages. So we're going to go through, so how do you pick a commentary? It's not because they agree with me that it's a good commentary. And in fact... A good commentary may have a conclusion you don't like, right? Or you don't, let's say, let's say you don't like, not that you don't like it, you don't agree with it, right? Um, If you've done your exegesis well, if you've done these preliminary steps well before you get to the commentary, more often than not, you'll find your agreement with the better commentaries. Yes? So what is exegesis? We are doing, we are teaching you to do exegesis. So we're we're that the whole diagram and the picture basically Keith give us, gives us is exegesis. I'm trying to understand what the original meaning was. How do I look at that meaning in, in the background and the culture? How do I bring the understanding of that? And how do I explain application of that? So I'm, I'm trying to understand and explain scripture is exegesis, right? That's what we're actually teaching in this class, right? So, if you have, typically, you're going to find that the commentaries are going to be good because they've done all of those steps. It's difficult to come to terribly wrong answers, right, when you're going through all the right steps. Nonetheless, we're going to see variations. So, the focus should be on what the, the focus should be on uh, what the text means, not homiletics and homiletics. You'll have some commentaries that are really just about how do I how do I give a sermon on a passage, and it kind of skips all the exegesis and it's just a sermon, right? And it's not the same thing. It may be devotional in nature, right? So there's some commentaries we're going to refer to as devotional commentaries, and they're not going to give you the meaty, detailed breakdown of words to help us understand a difficult passage, right? But they're going to give us an understanding, but it's really more devotional in nature. Um, 
maybe like preaching. That's what homiletics is, is preaching, right? So there's seven rules we're going to look at. Is the commentary exegetical? Is it homiletical? Which one, which type is it? I'm going to say there's actually three types. There's a detailed exegetical, there's exegetical, and then there's um, devotional. The devotional is less likely to give you the answers you want on difficult passages. Detailed exegetical is going to give you all those answers, but man, you've got some deep, some deep stuff to go through because they're going to be throwing Greek and Hebrew at you. And, and I'll show you how to work around that, but, um, the, the ones that probably you will use the most, ones I use the most are the ones that would just be in the middle category, the exegetical, right? So, um, is a commentary exegetical, homiletical, or a combination of both? Um, content questions of a passage are primarily exegetical value, right? I really don't want to look at these. I'm, I'm going to probably stay away from the homiletical or the devotionals because they're not going to give me what I'm looking for. It is based on the original Greek. So now, when I get this commentary, what was this commentary based on? What translation was it based on? Is it even based on the original Greek and Hebrew? Sometimes it's based on just an English translation. So can you imagine what we're doing today? We're trying to look at what the original statement was in the original language and understand the scope of the word in the original language and what it means. Well, if you're going to a book where you're just stopping at the English translation or maybe even a Latin translation, you've already lost some of the navigation of what the possible meanings of the passages are, right? So you really want a, a commentary that's based on the Greek and Hebrew, not an English translation because that limits you, right? <clears throat> and not a Latin translation. And I can tell you in Roman Catholic Church how they really go wrong because their Latin translations led them into the wrong path, right? Commentaries uh, using extensive Greek or Hebrew are still valuable, but I'm going to say you have to read around. I'm not a student of Greek. I'm definitely not a student of Hebrew. I have to read around those Greek and Hebrew words, and I'm going to show you how to do that to make those tools usable. When a text has more than one possible meaning, does the author discuss it? So one of the questions that tells you how effective the commentary is, does it tell you what all the possible meanings are? What are all the possible conclusions? Uh, <clears throat> does the author discuss text-critical problems? So when you get to one of those critical words that has a range of meanings, how much and how clear and how much does it give you to get through the detail, right, to help you understand. And is he going to do all that hard work? Because you've got to do what? You've got to look at the range of meaning. You've got to look at the context that it's in. You've got to look at the context in the sentence, in the paragraph, in the book, in the Bible. All of those things become critical, right? Does the, does the commentary do that? Uh, does the author discuss historical backgrounds? Those are going to be key Sometimes, and we'll see a little bit in, in one we're, the passage we're going to look at today, there's something I need to know about the culture to understand what the point of this discussion is. Right? <clears throat> um, does the author give bibliogra- bibliographical information, which is just a link to other sources, right? Did he give me information for I can go to another commentary or another source to help me find more information so it's, it's a pointer, right? 
So if you've got a good commentary, they're probably going to point to other good commentaries, right? So maybe you can find, maybe this commentary doesn't talk about the word in the detail you want, but this other commentary does. Okay, does the introduction section of the commentary give you enough information about the historical context to enable you to understand the case of the book? So that's just a general. Those are just simple questions. Do, do your commentaries do these things? If they do, they're good. Uh, most commentaries you find today are going to do all those to different degrees and different, different amounts. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you to um, 1 Corinthians 3, 36 through 38. And don't you love, we're taking you to some of the most difficult passages to be understood, let's just say even to translate, okay? So we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 7, 36 to 38. I'm going to give you some stuff in the handouts for this to help you. Who is being discussed in verse 36? Identify that there's a figure of speech in there. Where is that? Uh, it is not sin. What's the it sin they're talking about in verse 36? Um, Comparing verse 38 in the King James and YLT, how does that translation differ from the others? How is the statement in verse 36 related to the discussion of 38 related to the discussion of 36? Those are all questions I want you to answer. We're going to get there, right? We're going to go. And when you're done with this, what questions did you have? Now, on the handouts I gave you, I have one handout that has, uh, it's the thickest handout, and it has just Bible translations. And the very first page is page one. It has several different translations, and you're seeing. Is there what you guys finding that one? No. Looks like this. Except it doesn't have the writing at the top. Look at the handout that has KJV, ESV, NAS, 77, NIV, YLT, GNB. You guys find that? Okay. So, you're on this page. Here's your first assignment. Look at verse 36. There's six translations on there. Who's being discussed in verse 36? And you can start highlighting differences as you're going through there. Because you're going to look at all those translations, and they're going to just confuse you. So, but if any man, who are they talking about? What can you tell me about this guy from those translations? Is he a single man? That's a interpretation. What else do you have there? Might be the father. You could feel sorry for David Gibson. When he's trying to do translation work, right? Now, not all passages are this way. But the translators are dealing with exactly the same Greek and Greek words, right? And they're, tr- and they're coming up with really drastically different translations. One, this guy is, is uh, a guy who wants to get married. And the other guy is the father of the bride, how you read that question is a whole lot different between who those two people are, right? Are there two people being discussed or are there three people being discussed? Right? There are, do we have 
there's a point at the pronoun where it says, let them get married. So now it's talking about there's three people involved, right? Because if it's them getting married, there's a father, right? And possibly a bride and a groom. So your first question is, do you have an idea of who is who the, if any man is? So are you, you can go, we can, that's a point where we can start engaging in some word studies to try to look at how they came up with that, right? Um, is there a figure of speech in there in that verse 36? Find me a figure of speech. The flower of her age. Would you believe there's two possible understandings of that particular Greek um, figure of speech? She's either very young and just becoming mature, or she's very old, (laughs) right? But one of those two meanings is there, right? So... And if you read these translations, if you read all these translations, you'll start to see those different implications in the different translations that are here. So remember, the first step in our Bible study is to pull up the translations, right? And look at the translations and compare them. As you do that in this exercise, you start generating a bunch of questions. And you can open the view up. You can, you can move back to look at larger passages, maybe something else in the earlier uh, verses will help us identify who this guy is. <clears throat> Just to let you know, the commentaries say there is no connection <laughs> to who this guy is in the other passages before this. So that won't actually give you an answer. So have you, have you start to, to get some questions, right? Okay, let's do the obvious simple thing. You all probably have your study Bible, So let's go look at some study Bibles. So turn your page in your handout. The next page has three basically study Bible statements. What do you learn about this passage from those study Bible statements? Because that's the first place I'm going to go, right? Look at the translations. Look at my study Bible notes. Or they're helping me. And let me tell you why he says that. He is using in his commentary, or typically, well, it's an NASB. He's typically, well, I guess that doesn't always true because you could have a MacArthur Study Bible and other translations. But his commentary is going to be built on the NASB. The NASB has drawn a line in the sand and picked and interpretation for these for these questions we have right that i'm giving you um so if you just looked at the nas you would get one opinion about what this passage talks about if you looked at um if you looked at the king james you might get a completely different idea, right? So the study Bibles help you. And in fact, you know, the, the third study Bible entry there, which is uh, a Nelson study Bible for the King James Version, 
One interpretation of this passage is that any man refers to the father of an unmarried virgin. She is past the flower age, which indicates that the virgin is approaching an age at which marriage would be unlikely. Under these circumstances, it would be perfectly acceptable for the father to give her in marriage. A second interpretation, oh, here's the other one, suggests that any man is the fiancé, refers to the fiancé who is maintaining the celibate state with a virgin but is having difficulty doing so. Uh, In this view, the Greek term otherwise translated, she is past the flower of youth, is translated, he has strong passions. So uh, this is a a passage, if I was going to try to teach it, I would be pulling commentaries and trying to understand them. And keep in mind what you've got to do, you've got to be able to go to the commentaries and come to a conclusion about what it it means. I, I went to a church once. Um, and it was the passage on disciplining children, an Old Testament passage. You know, if you raise a child up, the way it go. And he went through a couple different interpretations, but he never told us which one he thought was the right one. I say, well, that's most unhelpful <laughs> because how you understand that passage can drastically differ how you choose to work within that discipline, right? David Gibson's, I know you've talked about that passage before and uh not that corinthian passage but the raise up a child away you should go what that means um it was frustrating to me to have him tell me there's possible meanings but but he's not going to tell me which one it is you're the pastor you're supposed to be helping us teach us to understand what scripture is you haven't helped me you've left me hanging without any idea how to get to the right answer am i just supposed to pick one well hopefully not if I pick one, hopefully I'm picking the right one, right? <clears throat> so let's get to the third question. What is sin or not sin? If, the, if it's a fiancé and his, and his engaged bride, why would it be a sin to marry her? Why would it be a sin not to marry her? That one just boggles my mind, Right? So if it's a father, well, MacArthur in, in his commentary, and let's just, so we got, how much time we got left? Ten minutes left? Let's turn the page. We're going to actually, so we looked at, we looked at translations, looked at study Bibles, now we're going to go to a commentary. In a little bit, I want to ask that question, does it give us all possible meanings? Or three possible meanings? So... Well, we've gone through those seven rules. We're, we're really just in the application. So, the, my, so you're turning the page, and you see the promises of fathers, right? That is a quotation from, you see at the very bottom of the page. And if you're at home listening to these, you've got all these handouts in the links, right? Uh, now, this is a MacArthur commentary. I'll, I'll give that away because it says at the bottom of the page. But as MacArthur explains this, he only gives us one explanation. He doesn't even tell us there's more than one. Is that good or is that bad? Well, my commentary evaluation said better is the commentary that tells us all the possibles. Um, But I'm going to say MacArthur is teaching from the NAS. If he's teaching from the NAS, you can see it drew a line in the sand 
on what the interpretation of those passages were. So he's going to explain that scripture based on NAS. And I believe, and if we got four minutes here at the end, I'll show you how he treats commentaries. But he's looked at probably at least 20 commentaries. He knows that there's multiple interpretations, but he only gives us one. And I think he only gives us one because he's done his exegetical work and through different aspects of that of that passage, he's concluded what the correct interpretation, right, and the correct explanation and the correct way to teach his church body what this passage says. So you're not actually going to see in the MacArthur commentary often three, right, the multiple versions. You may only see the one that makes sense that he can support from Scripture, right, through his exegetical analysis, right, and he's not afraid to say the translation's bad, <laughs> right? We know that. So in this particular case, he agrees with the NAS, and he's given us an interpretation. And actually, he gives us the background that explains the dilemma that's going on. So in his commentary, he's going to explain the backstory behind why is this a discussion? Why is this guy asking this question? Should this virgin be given in marriage? Right. He says in the Jewish culture, parents and particularly fathers had a long had long had a a dominant role in deciding their who their children should marry. The same general custom prevailing in prevailed in many ancient societies. You guys follow where I'm at. This is just under the bold under the bold wherever there's bold type in MacArthur's commentary. That's the actual uh, translation. Right. Um. Some historians credit Rome's decline in, the, in, the, in part to the weakening of the family caused by a loss of parental control in arranging marriages. In the New Testament times, the arranged marriage, especially for young people, was the norm. In light of the extant teaching, which doesn't exist anymore, we can't put our hands on that, um, <clears throat> about the advantages of singleness, some of the fathers in Corinth apparently had dedicated their young daughters to the Lord as permanent virgins. So now I've got the crux of a problem for the father. He made a choice for his daughter <laughs> that he was dedicating her celibate, right? And let's just, let's just go back a little bit to say, yes, there is a discussion actually in 1 Corinthians dealing with should I get married, should I not get married? If I'm married, should I get unmarried? Right, there is a discussion about that, and, and there's asceticism is also a question that could be there, which is say, if I denying myself things is beneficial for me spiritually, how does that work? Well, okay, if I don't have a wife and kids to look after, I can dedicate myself to evangelism, as maybe Paul did, right? Although Paul may have had a wife and she may have died, he didn't get married again, and he doesn't have any children. So his ability to go out and serve in the mission field is disconnected from other family responsibilities because he doesn't have them, right? So it's more effective for him to be single, but that's not necessarily the answer for everyone, right? And Paul talks about the gift of singleness. So interesting. So we want to jump to the commentary. Let's flip to the next. Just flip the page. We're going to go to a Gordon Fee commentary. Um, 
<laughs> and so there's the protase, protasis and adosis, uh, oh, apodosis. Man, I'm glad I'm an engineer and I don't have to mess with, with vocabulary. Uh, the protasis is an if-then statement and it's the, the, it's the, uh, sub, the, um, the subordinate clause and the apodosis is the main clause. So it's an if-then kind of statement. That's all he's talking about. If anyone thinks he is behaving properly towards his virgin, and we've got to understand that's the first if statement. The second if statement is, oh, is it talking about him or is it talking about her? Because the hyper hyperacmus, that word is not used many times, and exactly what it means is confusing. And thus it ought to be. Let him do as he wishes. So is this talking to a guy who wants to get married or a father of of a virgin? So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna drag you through all the possible um, interpretations, but what I I do want to show you. So I want to flip to another commentary. So uh, are you getting? I haven't yet, I, 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 with this current commentary we're in, which is a Gordon Fee, I think, um, you're just touching on, no, that's a Thistleton, sorry. That's, uh, I'm going to go through these really quick so you can see, that those are the commentaries we're looking at. Um, I want to jump to the Baker exegetical, which is another handout. So it says Garland, D.E., 2003, 1 Corinthians, Baker Exegetical New Testament Commentary. You guys find that handout? You might say, I like this commentary because it gives us three possible interpretations for this passage, and it tells us what they are, and it tells us what the basis for all of them is. And I think he actually actually lands on one in his, in his discussion. So... When I get to a particular difficult passage that has lots of options, I like to look at the Baker exegetical because he does a very good job of explaining all three. Right? Um, But, (laughs) there's a, so are you guys looking at this page? Looks like this. Right? So let's just jump down. The first view represented by NASB understands the situation to involve a father faced with a decision on whether or not to marry off his virgin daughter. It is imagined that the Corinthians asked, okay, what does that mean? I haven't told you this, but in the context, this letter may actually make more sense to the Corinthians than it does to us. Why? Because there is a letter, which we don't have, which was a letter to Paul, which asked questions that he's giving answers to. So there's probably a little more background that I that in um, the sovereignty of God, he didn't give us that piece. He only gave us really the answer, but not what the question is. So I'm having to take what I have and try to figure out what the what the question is. And I think I have an adequate piece of information I can draw a conclusion with all this stuff I have. So God didn't make a mistake, right? What is the father's duty? 
he has a daughter of marrying age. Should he allow her to marry? Uh, the anyone refers to the father and his virgin refers to his daughter. The girl is... That's a Greek word. <laughs> Hyperacmus. Right? Here's where I say... You're going to get to the detailed exegeticals. And the detailed exegeticals, that's just a flavor of you're going to run into Greek words left and right. And they don't, and the passage doesn't really make a lot of sense unless you know which Greek word they're talking about and which Greek word in the text that applies to. So I gave you this page, which we looked at interlinears, right? So here's an interlinear. What I do when I get to those detailed exegeticals and I run into one of those Greek words, I get out my interlinear and I find the Greek word so I can figure out which word it is in the text that he's talking about, right? Now, if you read Greek and you knew Greek, you could just bypass the lexicon, right, the uh, interlinear, and you would probably know what the word was talking about and you know the translation so it would be obvious to you, but I'm not a student of Greek nor Hebrew. Right, so I'm just going to go pull out this interlinear to find the Greek word. So I might have the interlinear over here, and I have the detailed exegetical commentary, and it's helping me navigate through those Greek and Hebrew words that are thrown into the text that don't make any sense to me. So at least I know which word and where it is in the word order or in the passage. So I'm just giving you a tool for how to do that. We, we've talked about interlinears, right? Uh, <clears throat> We've talked about word studies, right? We've talked about how commentaries can be helpful. And you can see just from when you went through the translations, there were questions dumping out every time you change translations. What exactly is going on here? Let me try to understand. And you can do all the stuff we did before. You can look at, we can do the observations and the observations will help sometimes, right? But Actually, as you read these commentaries, you're going to find out this is one of the most difficult passages to interpret of the passages in the New Testament. So great one for us to look at because it's going to throw a lot of questions out. And this, for me, is the fun, right, of doing this work because I get to dive in to see what the, all the possible meanings are, right, to start understanding what's being said so I can start to grab on to what the truth of the passage is. So is MacArthur a bad commentary because he only gives you one, not all three translations? And we saw some that only gave us two. We finally found one that gave us three. That's one of the questions on my what's a good commentary list. So, and I told you, MacArthur's probably going to use 20 commentaries, right, as he's reviewing a, reviewing a section. He's accessing so when you're looking at commentaries, you look at 20 commentaries, you know, why does MacArthur only teach on a few verses at a time or maybe one verse? Man, it takes time to go through all those commentaries and read them all and digest all this passage and figure out how I'm going to present it and explain it. So it's exciting to me. So I did uh, a Sunday school class when I replaced Keith once where I talked about a Genesis 3.16 passage. So for homework... I'm going to give you that same passage. So have you got a feel for what commentaries can do, right? When I run into all those difficult, when, I, when I've done all my exegesis, I've done my word studies, 
I'm still going to be left trying to understand the context and putting it all together. The commentaries are going to help us with that, right? Hopefully you'll conclude they help us. And in the end, you're going to have to make a decision. But there's several different indicators. There's a sin question in there. Why is it a sin? Why is it not a sin? And I think that plays into understanding whether it's a father or a groom, right? And how that decision's made. So as you understand that text, I think all of those pieces are going together to understand what that passage is trying to say. So it would be fun to see how David Gibson translated this when he did this. And, uh... I don't remember. Because <laughs> he... He had to actually translate this, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so what, what David's saying is when you pick a translation, as we saw the NAS, it has a clear direction on where it's taking you. Well, if you're in the Finney language, you know how many translations you have to work with? Either this or this, right? <laughs> one now because, right, they've got one now, but they have only one translation to look at. So maybe that's the grace of God for the Finney guys. They don't have to find there's ambiguity. They could just use the translation that they've got and, and they can go from there. But uh, when you're trying to teach it, you want to try to get to what the original said, right? So your homework assignment, should you choose to accept it, read... That page 275 to 278, and that's just going to talk about how do you pick commentaries. I've actually given you a commentary we haven't looked at. That's the iron side. It's an excerpt. It's a devotional commentary. Uh, just look at it so you know what they're like. Uh, I'm saying that because I don't want to spend my money on those because I want to get to the deep, deep questions, not how to teach it. Um, so we're going to look at Genesis 3.16. Here's your assignment for Genesis 3.16. Identify two possible meanings related to the woman's desire. Okay, you can do a word study on that. Now, I've been nice to you because that word's only used three times in the Old Testament. So you only have three, you only have really, it turns out, two options for the meaning of that word. In two of them, it's obvious. In the passage we're in is the difficult, which of those two meanings does it have? Uh, so find all three Old Testament passages where the word is used, and that's the Strong's H8669. Identify two interpretations, explain, explain which you believe is correct, and explain why. So I, if you want to see what I decided it meant <laughs> and why, you can go listen to the to the class I taught for Keith. After, they've done their homework After you've done your homework assignment, right? So, but, but you're going to basically go through this in the commentaries. But in the end, and to me, there's an amazing application of Scripture. If you, if you, come, to a, if you come to a certain under, the understanding I came to, I think there, it opens up Ephesians 5 a lot. If I understand the curse in 3.16... Because Ephesians 5 is the fix for the curse of 3.16, right? Um, anyway, that's, that's my spin on it. But, uh, so that, to me, this is what is exciting about digging into commentaries, digging into word studies, right? 
you run into these questions you just want to know the answer for, right? And so the fun is going to find those. And maybe even the fun is actually going to, to teach someone what they mean, right? So you have the Ironside commentary. It, so your homework is to read the Ironside commentary just to see what that is like. So um, of the commentaries you have out there, MacArthur commentaries are good. They're going to give you discussions of the critical passages, but they're not going to probably tell you all the crit, all the aspects of it, right? But he's going to go down a path that he believes. Sometimes you're going to get, he's going to give you different interpretations. If you want a really good explanation of all possible options, you go to the Baker exegetical. And if you just want to look, the, uh, the others are all going to contribute something, right, to your understanding of the passage. So think we're just looking at four, or really three, or actually four, right? MacArthur said he looks at 20 to understand a passage, right? And it's not because the commentary is, he agrees with the answer that the commentary is valuable, right? He's seeing what that author is doing in his exegesis, how he's connecting the word to the context, right? To the other parts of the passage. We're seeing all that in his arguments that's helping inform us how we're going to understand this passage, right? Which is the joy of reading scripture. So do you like puzzles, right? I want, I don't want to say the Bible's a puzzle because it's not. Scripture is very clear. Um, this just happens to be one of the most difficult in translation and understanding that you can run across in the New Testament. They're not all going to be as hard as this one, right? Most of the time you'll get maybe one or two options and, and your answer is going to be pretty obvious which one you want to pick. So, and, and why you, you believe that one to be the correct one. So. I don't know. Hope you guys are excited. Hope you're excited about the assignment to go look at Genesis 3.16. Find that word desire and see what the possible meanings are and implications of it. Um, and we'll, if you want, I can send you the link to that John MacArthur interview, Boston Duncan, where he talks about his use of commentaries. But you guys want to play it? Okay, let her rip. We're in overtime. So, Matt, let's talk about process. The process, walk us through it, big picture. Who's calling Matt? What does it look like to prepare a sermon? Give us your method, your process, your step-by-step. Well, it it should be pretty obvious. Uh, Since I'm going through a book, uh, I know what's coming next. So I know what has been previously developed. So I know the flow. I, I see the context. So what I do is, to begin with, I read through the text. And I read through it enough so that it is in my head. Because one of the things I've learned through the years is, if I have that text in my head, and I leave the desk and I go somewhere else or do something else, it's still rolling around in my mind. And I'm coming up with some of the best things I ever think of in the process of not being focused on that, but just in the moments of it being in my head. So I like to have that text in my head early in the week. And you do that by repeated reading and just by stewing on it. Yeah, yeah, just meditating on the text. And then the second step is when I sit down at my desk and and I go back to the original tools, and whether it's lexicons or Greek dictionary or whatever I need, to make sure I'm dealing with the the words in the best way. Uh, Obviously, I've got to get that right. So I want to know what it says. That's the first question. What does this actually say? So pause it, pause it. 
Are you hearing that he is talking about exactly what we're doing in this class? Exactly what we're teaching, right? This is what Terry and, and Keith and MacArthur and all good exegetical pastors are doing through the week for whatever they're going to teach. Go, keep going. So I, I developed an understanding of it. Okay, I get what it says. I've read it over and over in the English language, and I've gone back to the original, and I know what it says. So the next task is, what does it mean? So to help me with what it means, inevitably I'll read maybe a dozen commentaries because commentaries do several things. Number one, what they do is they give me the benefit of past illumination. I don't need to think that that all illumination landed with me. I I believe the Spirit of God has been illuminating the truth of Scripture for centuries ever since the Scripture was written, and I want to take advantage of that. So I, I, I have guys I trust sources I trust, and I go back and read them. So the first thing it does is it unloads, it downloads into my mind past illumination. It's very important to me because I don't want something new. I don't, I, don't, I don't want anything that sounds new, like I never heard that before. That scares me. I want to make sure I'm in the flow of how the Spirit of God has illuminated men in the past. Uh, I think it's very dangerous to assume that even with a Greek text in your hand, you're going to draw all the right conclusions if you ignore past illumination. And I would just add this. There is an amazing consistency to the illumination of the Word of God. You can go all the way back um, to the Fathers. You can go back to the Reformers. You can go back to the Puritans. You can go back to the Americans. You can stop it there. So I just wanted you to get a flavor for how he looks at commentaries, right? The Holy Spirit is illuminating the Scripture for all of us as we read Scripture, right? But some of us in these guys have put in some serious time, which we're, we're beginning to grasp the time it takes to, to really understand a passage sometimes, right? There's guys who've done that. So we're benefiting from their past work And I'm saying God has given gifted teachers to the church to build up the church. And some of those guys exist in commentaries. So the commentaries are God's continued service of a teacher to the body of Christ. Right. Because the commentaries are giving us their teaching. Right. In some detail, which is benefiting us and helping us grow in our understanding. So that's the value of commentaries. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, and I'll say an application for us in, in the Corinthian church is that knowledge puffs up, right? So we have to be very careful as a church that if we become proud of the effective exegesis of our teachers, that we become, that becomes a source of pride and a, and a tool which we may beat up other Christians with, which are really people who we should be admonishing in love to consider, right? Maybe there's a teaching or something to be understood here. So how do we approach our brothers and sisters in Christ in love, helping them to see the bigger truth of what's in that scripture than what's there? So that's, that's our biggest challenge, I think, as a church with the good teaching we have not to beat up other Christians, but show them in love how to, how to help them. And, and maybe it's, 
I don't know all the ways to do that, but, but a lot of times, you know, let me share something with you about that I learned and why I think this. And, oh, by the way, have you ever considered that maybe that might be a wrong interpretation? And here's maybe why. And, you, and here's the fun thing. You've got to go do some homework to do some digging before you can have that discussion with that person, which is effectively building you up. And you're going to these good teachers and benefiting from them as you're trying to study to learn to help that person answer that question. So here's my, there's one thing I want to say about Keith's, Keith's topic. If I gave a, a chainsaw to a five-year-old, right, I wouldn't expect him to do effective things with it, right? So when Keith went through the word study, he told you of five to six wrong ways to use words to use word studies right that's like the safety manual for the chainsaw right these are all the things you can do wrong in word studies if you don't pay attention to the don't do it this way things right you can be a five-year-old with a chainsaw right and a greek english dictionary if you don't know the things you can do wrong with that dictionary you can do terrible things with it right so if you go listen to that lesson, well, there's another lesson I did where I actually go through a passage on the word sanctification, and a guy is guilty of one of those fallacies, right? He combined all the meanings of one word and says, every time you see this in Scripture, it means all these things, right? Well, no, it doesn't, <laughs> right? And how do I know that's true? Well, now you've had the class, right, that explains that principle, and it's a very important, it's in, it's, it is important to know how to do it right as how to read the safety manual, not to do it wrong. Because you don't want to be a five-year-old with a chainsaw trying to be a teacher, right? And anyway, so, so those are the five-year-old chainsaw rules. Just think of it that way, right? So let's quit in prayer. And I've gone into 15 minutes of overtime. Lord, we're just excited. We're excited that you preserved... Um, scripture uh, through the large number of manuscripts that we are reliably returning to understanding what you intended to communicate in in the original manuscripts that were not the original manuscript but the manuscripts we have which are the best attestation and we know reliably uh, what to what what the original manuscripts were so we are able to see the things you intended us to have a written word. You intended us to read it and understand it. Lord, help us to use these tools. Um, help us to dig deep. Help us to get excited about the, the great joy of seeing the wonder of the fullness of the truth in Scripture. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.